Chapter 16 of A Series of Lessons in Raja Yoga. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jackie Horn. A Series of Lessons in Raja Yoga by Yogi Rama Sharaka. Chapter 16 The Seventh Lesson The Unfoldment of Consciousness. Part 1. We have thought it well to make a slight change in the arrangement of these lessons, that is, in the order in which they should appear. We had contemplated making the seventh lesson a series of mental drills, intended to develop certain of the mental faculties, but we have decided to postpone the same until a later lesson, believing that by so doing a more logical sequence or order of arrangement will be preserved. In this lesson we will tell you of the unfoldment of consciousness in man, and in the next lesson, and probably in the one following it, we shall present to you a clear statement regarding the states of mind, below and over consciousness, the most wonderful region, we assure you, and one that has been greatly misunderstood and misinterpreted. This will lead up to the subject of the cultivation of the various faculties, both conscious and outside of consciousness, and the series will be concluded by three lessons going right into the heart of this part of the subject, and giving certain rules and instruction calculated to develop man's wonderful thought machine, that will be of the greatest interest and importance to all of our students. When the lessons are concluded, you will see that the present arrangement is most logical and proper. In this lesson, we take up the subject of the unfoldment of consciousness, the most interesting subject. Many of us have been in the habit of identifying consciousness with mind, but as we proceed with this series of lessons, we will see that that which is called consciousness is but a small portion of the mind of the individual and even that small part is constantly changing its states and unfolding new states undreamed of. Consciousness is a word we use very often in considering the science of the mind. Let us see what it means. Webster defines it as one's knowledge of sensations and mental operations, or of what passes in one's own mind. Halleck defines it as that undefinable characteristic of mental states which causes one to be aware of them. But, as Halleck states, consciousness is incapable of definition. To define anything, we are obligated to describe it in terms of something else, and there is nothing else in the world like consciousness. Hence, we can define it only in terms of itself, and that is very much like trying to lift oneself by one's own bootstraps. Consciousness is one of the greatest mysteries that confronts us. Before we can understand what consciousness really is, we must know what mind really is. And that knowledge is lacking, notwithstanding the many ingenious theories evolved in order to explain the mystery. The metaphysicians do not throw much light on the subject, and as for materialistic science, listen to what Huxley says. How it comes about that anything so remarkable as a state of consciousness comes about by the result of irritating nervous tissue is just as unaccountable as the appearance of the genie when Aladdin rubbed his lamp. To many persons the words consciousness and mental process or thought are regarded as synonyms, and in fact, psychologists so held until quite recently but now it is generally accepted as a fact that mental processes are not limited to the field of consciousness, and it is now generally taught that the field of subconsciousness, that is, under-consciousness, mentation, is of a much greater extent than that of conscious mentation. Not only is it true that the mind can hold in consciousness but one fact at any one instant, and that, consequently, only a very small fraction of our knowledge can be in consciousness at any one moment, but it is also true that the consciousness plays a very small part in the totality of mental processes, or mentation. The mind is not conscious of the greater portion of its own activities. Maudsley says that only 10% comes into the field of consciousness. 
Taine has stated it in these words. Of the world which makes up our being, we only perceive the highest points, the lighted-up peaks of a continent whose lower levels remain in the shade. But it is not our intention to speak of this great subconscious region of the mind at this point, for we shall have much to do with it later on. It is mentioned here in order to show that the enlargement or development of consciousness is not so much a matter of growth as it is an unfoldment, not a new creation or enlargement from the outside, but rather an unfoldment outward from within. From the very beginning of life, among the particles of inorganic substance, may be found traces of something like sensation and response hitherto. Writers have not cared to give to this phenomenon the name of sensation or sensibility, as the terms savored too much of senses and sense organs. But modern science has not hesitated to bestow the name so long withheld. The most advanced scientific writers do not hesitate to state that in reaction, chemical response, etc., may be seen indications of rudimentary sensation. Haeckel says, I cannot imagine the simplest chemical and physical process without attributing the movement of the material particles to unconscious sensation. The idea of chemical affinity consists in the fact that the various chemical elements perceive the qualitative differences in other elements and experience pleasure or revulsion at contacts with them and execute their specific movements on this ground. He also speaks of the sensitiveness of plasm, or the substance of living bodies, as being only a superior degree of the general irritability of substance. Chemical reaction between atoms is spoken of by chemists as a sensitive reaction. Sensitiveness is found even in the particles of inorganic substance, and may be regarded as the first glimmerings of thought. Science recognizes this when it speaks of the unconscious sensation of the particles as a thesis, or feeling and the unconscious will that responds thereto as tropesis, or inclination. Haeckel says of this that sensation perceives the different qualities of the stimuli and feeling the quantity, and also, we may ascribe the feeling of pleasure and pain in the contact with qualitatively different atoms to all atoms, and so explain the elective affinity in chemistry, attraction of loving atoms, inclination, repulsion of hating atoms, disinclination. It is impossible to form a clear or intelligent idea of the phenomenon of chemical affinity, etc., unless we attribute to the atoms something akin to sensation. It is likewise impossible to understand the actions of the molecules, unless we think of them as possessing something akin to sensation. The law of attraction is based upon mental states and substance. The response of inorganic substance to electricity and magnetism is also another evidence of sensation and the response thereto. In the movements and operations of crystal life, we obtain evidences of still a little higher forms of sensation and response thereto. The action of crystallization is very near akin to that of some low forms of plasmic action. In fact, the missing link between plant life and the crystals is claimed to have been found in some recent discoveries of science, the connection being found in certain crystals in the interior of plants composed of carbon combinations and resembling the inorganic crystals in many ways. Crystals grow along certain lines and forms up to a certain size. Then they begin to form baby crystals on their surfaces, which then take on the growth, the processes being almost analogous to cell life. Processes akin to fermentation have been detected among chemicals. In many ways, it may be seen that the beginning of mental life must be looked for among the minerals and particles, the latter, be it remembered, composing not only inorganic but also organic substance. As we advance in the scale of life, we are met with constantly increasing unfoldment of mentation, the simple giving place to the complex manifestations. Passing by the simple vital processes of the monora, or single-celled things, 
we notice the higher forms of cell life with growing sensibility or sensation. Then we come to the cell groups in which the individual cells manifest sensation of a kind coupled with the community sensation. Food is distinguished, selected, and captured, and movements exercised in pursuit of the same. The living thing is beginning to manifest more complex mental states. Then the stage of the lower plants is reached, and we notice the varied phenomena of that region, evidencing an increased sensitiveness, although there are practically no signs of special organs of sense. Then we pass on to the higher plant life, in which begin to manifest certain sensitive cells, or groups of such cells, which are rudimentary sense organs. Then the forms of animal life, and considered with rising degrees of sensations and growing sense apparatus, or sense organs, gradually unfolding into something like nervous systems. Among the lower animal forms there are varying degrees of mentation, with accompanying nerve centers and sense organs, little or no signs of consciousness, gradually ascending until we have dawning consciousness in the reptile kingdom, etc., and fuller consciousness and a degree of intelligent thought in the still higher forms, gradually increasing until we reach the plane of the highest mammals, such as the horse, dog, elephant, ape, etc., which animals have complex nervous systems, brains, and well-developed consciousness. We need not further consider the forms of mentation and the forms of life below the conscious stage, for that would carry us far from our subject. Among the higher forms of animal life, after a dawn period or semi-consciousness, we come to forms of life among the lower animals possessing a well-developed degree of mental action and consciousness, the latter being called by psychologists simple consciousness, but which term we consider too indefinite, and which we will term physical consciousness, which will give a fair idea of the thing itself. We use the word physical in the double sense of external and relating to the material structure of living being, both of which definitions are found in the dictionaries. And that is just what physical consciousness really is, an awareness in the mind, or a consciousness of the external world as evidenced by the senses, and of the body of the animal or person. The animal or person thinking on the plane of physical consciousness, all the higher animals do, and many men seem unable to rise much higher, identifies itself with the physical body and is conscious only of thoughts of that body and the outside world. It knows, but not being conscious of mental operations or of the existence of its mind, it does not know that it knows. This form of consciousness, while infinitely above the mentation of the non-conscious plane of sensation, is like a different world of thought from the consciousness of the highly developed intellectual man of our age and race. It is difficult for a man to form an idea of the physical consciousness of the lower animals and savages, particularly as he finds it difficult to understand his own consciousness except by the act of being conscious. But observation and reason have given us a fair degree of understanding of what this physical consciousness of the animal is like, or at least in what respect it differs from our own consciousness. Let us take a favorite illustration. A horse standing out in the cold sleet and rain undoubtedly feels the discomfort, and possibly pain, for we know by observation that animals feel both, but he is not able to analyze his mental states and wonder when his master will come out to him. Think how cruel it is to keep him out of the warm stable, wonder whether he will be taken out in the cold again tomorrow, feel envious of other horses who are indoors, wonder why he is compelled to be out cold nights, etc., etc. In short, he does not think as would a reasoning man under such circumstances. He is aware of the discomfort, just as would be the man, and he would run home if he could, just as would the man. But he is not able to pity himself, nor to think about his personality, as would the man, nor does he wonder whether such a life is worth living, after all. He knows, but is not able to think of himself as knowing. He does not know that he knows, as we do. He experiences the physical pain and discomfort, 
but is spared the mental discomfort and concern arising from the physical which man so often experiences the animal cannot shift its consciousness from the sensations of the outer world to the inner states of being it is not able to know itself the difference may be clumsily illustrated by the example of a man feeling seeing or hearing something that gives him a pleasurable sensation or the reverse he is conscious of the feeling or sensation and that it is pleasurable or otherwise that is physical consciousness and the animal may share it with him but it stops right there with the animal but the man may begin to wonder why the sensation is pleasurable and to associate it with other things and persons or speculate why he dislikes it what will follow and so on that is mental consciousness because he recognizes an inward self and is turning his attention inward he may see another man and experience a feeling or sensation of attraction or aversion like or dislike this is physical consciousness and an animal may also experience a sensation the man goes further than the animal and wonders just what there is about the man he likes or detests and may compare himself to the man and wonder whether the latter feels as he does and so on this is mental consciousness in animals the mental gaze is freely directed outward and never returns upon itself in man the mental gaze may be directed inward or may return inward after its outward journey the animal knows the man not only knows but he knows that he knows and is able to investigate that knowing and speculate about it we call this higher consciousness mental consciousness the operation of physical consciousness we call instinct the operation of mental consciousness we call reason end of chapter 16 recording by jackie horn laytonsville maryland